Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello, everybody, and welcome back once again to Dirty Sexy History. My name is Jessica Kale, and today's episode has been a long time coming. Today, we are talking about same-sex marriage throughout history and focusing in particular on a couple of exceptional people two high-profile cases of so-called female husbands from 18th century England. Before we get into it, I want to mention a couple of things. This is an absolutely massive subject, and I've been working on it for a very long time. Even with the best will in the world, I can't fit it all into one episode, and as much as I try to give a very brief overview here, it is pretty focused on England to keep it as relevant as possible. I will be coming back to the subject to focus on different periods and locations in the future, however, so if I don't cover everything today, don't worry. We are going to circle back. Secondly, a note on pronouns. In the 18th century, people didn't have the same distinctions with gender that we do now, and without actually speaking to the dead, we can't know for certain how they identified. Both of the key people that I'm talking about today identified as male and female at various points in their lives, so out of respect, I'm going to use their names or the pronouns they and them when referring to them. Make sense? Okay, let's get started. To George in London, James Howe was the perfect man. The owner of the White Horse Tavern in London's East End for more than 30 years, James was a respected pillar of the community, a self-made success who volunteered on the night watch, regularly went to church, and ran a popular business with their wife, Mary. Their household was in order, Mary was happy, and their community loved them. When Mary passed away after 32 years of marriage, James lost not only their wife, but their relative anonymity. See, when Mary was on her deathbed, she allegedly confessed a secret that she had guarded for most of her life. James, her beloved husband, had been assigned female at birth. As it happens, James Howe had been born Mary East around 1712. Born into poverty, they were raised as a girl and spent much of their childhood working as a household servant. To ultimately become not only a pub owner, but a wealthy one at that, must have been unimaginable for a child growing up in these circumstances, particularly for a girl. Women worked, they absolutely did, but so much of their lives depended on their relation to men. While women could and did find ways to exercise a degree of agency over their own lives, so much still depended on sympathetic fathers, brothers, and husbands. A girl wanting to move up in the world would have to choose a partner wisely. And James, well, they did. So what's better than marrying a wealthy man? To invoke Cher here, 
becoming one. We don't know for sure if James had always wanted to be one or if it was, like they said in later years, a simple twist of fate. But what we do know is that in 1732, when James was 16, they married a girl called Mary Snapes. Years later, James claimed that Mary had been a childhood friend. After several failed romantic relationships with men, they had decided to give them up altogether at the grand old age of 16 and marry each other instead. Okay, people still joke about this, but it's another thing entirely to actually go through with it, let alone go through with it and stay married for the rest of your natural lives. Anyway, James said the gender thing didn't really matter. Before the wedding, they said they'd flipped a coin, lost, and honored the bet by living and working as a man for the next four decades. You know, as you do. Still, this account was largely accepted, and the almost silly innocence of it helped to save James's reputation. Apart from living as a man, there was really nothing else that they could say about James. They were essentially perfect, a bit too good at being a man. So good, in fact that it raised broader questions about what it meant to be a man in Georgian London. It was more than your assigned gender at birth. It was how you conducted yourself, took care of your loved ones, and how you gave back to your community. As far as Mary was concerned, James was perfect. In the years to come, James would be the focus of countless articles, stories, and outright criticism, but not much has been said about Mary. Mary certainly knew what she was getting into when she married James, and she was happy about it. She didn't want kids, and in a time when you had a 50-50 shot of dying in childbirth, can you blame her? But she did want the security of being married to someone she could trust. As James's wife, she was financially stable, co-owned their business, and she had a home of her own. She willingly rejected the accepted path of motherhood and built the life she actually wanted with a devoted partner of her choosing, and then she lived happily ever after. By doing this, as historian Jen Mannion points out, Mary was actually a greater threat to social order than James. What if other women did the same thing? Well, other women did, and they always had. By the time James and Mary took over the White Horse and Poplar, marriage and other kinds of civil partnerships between same-sex, trans, or other gender non-conforming couples had been taking place all around the world for thousands of years. The earliest took place in ancient Mesopotamia, and they certainly happened in Greece and parts of China as well. Though the book of Leviticus warns against them, it does confirm that same-sex marriage was taking place in Canaan and Egypt. In Rome, 13 of the first 14 Roman emperors were gay or bisexual. The emperor Nero married three different men over his life as well. But views on homosexuality changed as Christianity made its way throughout Europe. Although the church officially objected to it, some of the most compelling evidence for homosexuality in the Middle Ages survives because of it. Bear in mind that although people absolutely had same-sex relationships, homosexuality wasn't yet viewed as an identity as it is today. Same-sex activity was still considered a sin, but anybody was capable of it and anybody could be vulnerable to temptation. In his 11th century canon of medicine, 
Avicenna dismissed male homosexuality as a meditative illness, but he acknowledged that it could not be cured. Nope, not even through prayer or conversion camps in the 11th century. See, the churches running these things today are only a thousand years behind. Guys, keep up. Anyway, although the church officially condemned same-sex activity, the line between acceptable friendship and carnal sin could be blurry at best. English Cistercian abbot Aylred of Rilvaux documented his romantic feelings for his fellow monks in detail. It wasn't something he felt he needed to be cured of. As far as he was concerned, the love he felt for them was a gift from God. Although he was criticized for the sensuality of some of the passages, he argued that his feelings were holy. There was little distinction between spiritual and erotic love. Love for a friend could be a spiritual experience, and spiritual love could border on the erotic. Of one of these friendships, Aylred wrote of his, quote, Dear friendship, whose loving breast you can approach, safe from all temptations of the world, and if you unite yourself to him without delay in all the meditations of your heart, by whose spiritual kisses, like healing balm, you will discharge the weariness of your stressful concerns. Sounds pretty good, right? But as for spiritual unions, there was always adelphopoesis. Literally, brother-making, these spiritual brotherhoods were lifelong unions between two men. They commonly took place within the church among monks or missionaries, but some laymen entered into them as well. While there is debate about whether these could be considered a form of gay marriage, these ceremonies were strikingly similar. The men would join hands, recite a marriage prayer, and exchange a kiss. Sex between women was acknowledged even less frequently than that between men, but surviving songs from medieval troubadours make numerous explicit references to lesbian relationships, particularly between nuns. Throughout the Middle Ages, thousands of women chose the church over marriage for various reasons, and it's not unreasonable to assume that some of them preferred the company of other women. Some surviving letters between nuns do hint at the occasional romance, but some are rather clearer, like this anonymous letter from one nun to another written in the 12th century. She writes, Why do you want your only one to die, who, as you know, loves you with soul and body, who sighs for you every hour at every moment like a hungry little bird? As the turtle dove, having lost its mate, perches forever on its little dried-up branch, so I lament endlessly. You are the only woman I have chosen, according to my heart. Despite the church's opposition to sodomy, it continued to happen among lay people, as it always had. In the bankside brothels of medieval London, male sex workers were available as well as female. One notable man was John Reichener in the late 14th century, who dressed in women's clothing to serve popular demand, much of it coming from the clerics themselves. We talk more about the Bankside brothels and their connection to the medieval church in episode 10. As for civil unions, a frerement, meaning brotherment, was an option available to those looking to form non-nuclear households. These relationships were known to take place in England and France, as well as some parts of the Mediterranean. 
Affrairment contracts legally joined the property of those entering into it. These relationships would have provided some protection for same-sex couples wanting to live together. Because these contracts were relatively common, men entering into them would have raised few eyebrows. Like traditional marriage ceremonies, contracts were notarized in front of witnesses, often friends, and the partners, known as affrères, would vow to live together and share un pain, un vin, et une bourse, one bread, one wine, and one purse. Like Maitalotich later on, this made them each other's heirs over other close relatives. Anything that happened after the ceremony in the privacy of their own home, well, that was their business. Not all relationships were formalized, however, and people did find ways of being together. Evidence for the tacit tolerance of some of these relationships can be found in the joint tomb of English knights Sir William Neville and Sir John Clanvaux, who died in Constantinople in 1391. The inscription on the tomb states that the men had been inseparable for 13 years, and when one died, the other refused to eat until he himself died only days later. An image carved into the tomb shows the men holding identical shields combining their individual coats of arms, which was something that married couples did when joining their houses. In the 16th century, laws were passed in England that made sodomy a crime. If convicted, men could face fines, imprisonment, public humiliation, or even execution. Of course, that doesn't mean that it didn't happen only that it was forced to remain underground. By 1727, the London Journal reported on 20 sodomitical clubs operating within the city, including the most famous, Mother Claps in Holborn. From 1724 to 1726, Margaret Clapp ran a coffee house in Holborn that served a very important purpose for the gay community of London. Less about profit and more about companionship, she provided beds throughout the house, her own private residence, to men who were looking to spend time together. Accounts paint a picture of an inclusive atmosphere with many men wearing women's clothing and adopting female names and mannerisms. It had its own wedding chapel where mock marriages would take place and later be consummated in the same room. A bed was provided for the purpose, along with an officiant to guard the door. But Mother Claps wasn't the only place that played with the idea of marriage. Among London's gay community, lovers would often refer to each other as husbands. It's worth noting that some heterosexual weddings were still taking place at this time with nothing more than what was offered at Claps. Consent, a witness, and consummation. The only real difference would have been intent and social acceptance. Mother Clapp hosted up to 40 men per night, and when her house was eventually raided in 1726, witnesses claimed to find up to 50 of them in compromising positions. Clapp cared deeply for these men, and on more than one occasion, she provided false testimony in court to acquit them of sodomy charges. Following the raid, Clapp was convicted of keeping a disorderly house and was sentenced to two years imprisonment, a fine of 20 marks, and a stint in the pillory in Smithfield. She is thought to have died from injuries sustained from that pillory. Three of her guests, Gabriel Lawrence, William Griffin, and Thomas Wright, 
were executed. When Margaret Clapp was brought to trial, she said to the jury, I hope it will be considered that I am a woman, and therefore it cannot be thought that I would ever be concerned in such practices. She was able to joke about it not only because the men weren't there for her, but because, as we would see in the decades to come, same-sex relationships between women were viewed very differently. Laws surrounding homosexuality were related to sexual acts rather than orientations. Without defined identities, sexuality was more of a fluid concept, with most falling somewhere in the middle. Experimentation was not uncommon between girls, and the close friendships that sometimes developed between them were largely ignored because they were not viewed as a threat to men. Friends could be very physical with one another, after all. Kissing, embracing, even sharing beds. So if it went further, well, how bad could it be? Lesbian women were not viewed with the same hostility as gay men, with women having more affectionate female friends and sometimes even cohabitating, who was to say where friendship ended and romance began? In any case, men had real trouble imagining what women would even do in bed with one another. They might pass the time together, sure, but there's no substitute for someone with a penis. Right? Sure, Jam. Well, this issue would come up again in 1746, a decade after James Howe had married Mary Snapes, and they were well on their way to becoming publicans in the East End. In Wells, Charles Hamilton scandalized the papers when they were brought to trial by their new wife, confusingly enough, also named Mary. Like James, Charles had been assigned female at birth. Unlike James, however, Charles's new wife wasn't in on the arrangement. Charles had lived as a man from the age of 14 and even worked as an apprentice to two different doctors. By the time they met Mary Price, Charles was a successful young professional traveling the country alone and selling remedies for common ailments door to door. After a short courtship, Charles and Mary got married with the permission of her family. When Mary brought Charles to trial, no few eyebrows were raised when she claimed they'd been having sex frequently for two months before she realized that her husband wasn't what she'd expected. Not only was the sex good, but it was so good, she didn't even notice that Charles was lacking a um, certain piece of equipment. This revelation was threatening, to say the least. In other cases of gender transgression or quote, female husbands, as the papers started to call them, the punishment tended to be fairly token, but Charles was dangerous. As someone charming enough to win a respectable young lady and then have the audacity to show her a good time, Charles must have made the men there feel a little inadequate, to say the least. Whatever the case may be, the punishment was severe. The marriage was dissolved, and Charles was charged under the Vagrancy Act of 1744. Charles was publicly whipped in four towns, and their name was published in the local papers with exaggerated crimes. One surprised young lady became 14 of them in the papers, and Charles Hamilton became a legend. As for Charles, they moved to the next county over before eventually moving to America to sell medical supplies door-to-door -door over here, starting in North Carolina and eventually ending up in Pennsylvania. After their short-lived, if infamous, marriage, Charles had numerous other lovers and continued to live as a man for the rest of their life. As for James Howe, well, their court case went a little bit differently. 
It wasn't Mary's deathbed confession that got James into trouble, however. A woman calling herself Mrs. Bentley claimed to recognize James from childhood and attempted to extort money from them, starting until 1750 until it came to a head shortly after Mary's death. Mrs. Bentley sent two men to intimidate James, threatening to out them and report them for highway robbery some years prior, a crime that they were never involved in. Fed up, James enlisted the help of their friend Mr. Williams, a local pawnbroker. Mr. Williams helped James to bring charges against Mrs. Bentley and her associates for extortion. In the trial that followed, James confessed everything. Mrs. Bentley and the men who had been sent after James received short sentences, but by then the damage had been done and James was exhausted. Still grieving their wife, James once again became Mary East and retired to the country to live out the rest of their life as a woman with the small fortune they had made from the white horse in Poplar. Now, one could certainly argue that James may have been transgender, but for many women, posing as men might have only been a means to an end. While James was still running the white horse, a couple calling themselves Elizabeth Huffle and John Smith were married elsewhere in the city. The minister later recorded that Smith was unusually small and thin, no more than five feet tall, and that his clerk suspected that they were both women. He married them anyway. Other clerical notes from the period mentioned similar situations. With no way to prove their suspicions, the church did not automatically turn them away. Years before it was officially legalized, same-sex marriage did take place within the Church of England. Now, we can't know for sure how many women lived as men, and defining others as trans or non-binary is difficult without knowing how they personally identified. Regardless, many gay, lesbian, or gender non-conforming people were able to marry or form lasting partnerships despite legal and social restrictions. I've mentioned a few examples here today, but this is by no means exhaustive. If you are interested in this, definitely check out our sources for this episode. I read Jen Mannion's book, Female Husbands, this week, and guys, I could not put it down. This book is so good. It is one of the most interesting history books that I've read in a very long time, and that's just one of them that I used for this episode, so be sure to check some of these out. This week, I want to take a minute to give a special shout out to friend of the podcast and superstar patron Jess Miller, who just finished her diploma in library and information services. She's going to start a history major this year, and we could not be happier to hear it. Congratulations, Jess, and best of luck with the new course. We're all rooting for you. So while I'm at it, I would also like to thank our fantastic patrons on Patreon, Melanie Baker, Michael Beckwith, Bethany Bennett, Andy Christopher, Rachel Cooney, Michelle Dunbar, James Finch, Adriana Herrera, Howard David Ingham, Emma Young, Janine Meberg, Jessica Miller, Akko Spoot, and Sylvia Van Eyck. We've got some more big episodes coming up, and again, guys, that is all thanks to you. So thank you so very much. It really means the world. If you would like to support the show, you can find us on patreon.com slash dirty sexy history, where we will post extras from the show. I'm hoping to do a little bit of uh, art history for you this weekend. <laughs> so uh, I guess we're gonna see how that goes, huh? 
You can also support us by rating, reviewing, sharing, and subscribing to the podcast. And all of that, of course, is very much appreciated. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Dirty Sexy History. My sources today include Eric Berkowitz, Sex and Punishment, 4,000 Years of Judging Desire. John Boswell, Same-Sex Unions in Pre-Modern Europe. Louis Crompton, Homosexuality and Civilization. Fermer Stavoywala, The Secret History of Same-Sex Marriage, The Guardian. Jen Mannion, Female Husbands, A Trans History. Ruth Mazo Karras, Sexuality in Medieval Europe, Doing Unto Others. Richter Norton, Editor, Molly's Club, 1709-10, to Homosexuality in 18th Century England, A Sourcebook. John T. McNeil and Helena M. Gamer, Translators, Medieval Handbooks of Penance, A Translation of the Principal Libri Penitentialis and Selections from Related Documents. Alan Tolchin, The 600-Year Tradition Behind Same-Sex Unions, History News Network. See you next time.